Welcome to the Captain Bagrat podcast, where we're on a mission to fight boring news about Asia and Australia. You know, it's a tough job, but somebody's got to do it with a finger on the Asian, well, Asianish pulse. As always, we're recording from downtown Chinatown with yours truly, the mythical Madam Chan and friends. Welcome back to another episode of Captain Bagrat podcast. And today I have the 2019 Social Enterprise Entrepreneur awarded by Third Sector, Wei Yo, who is the co-founder of Umbo. Welcome. Thank you. What an intro. I know. What a huge intro. I've got a winner here. <laughs> it's quite a mouthful. <laughs> <laughs> well, would you like to continue that mouthful? Oh, yeah. Well, um, the, the first part of it, I guess, was um, honestly, it was a surprise and I know that that's something that people say, but it genuinely was because I actually wasn't there to oh, pick no. up the award. What happened? Were you too busy helping kids? No, I was on holidays <laughs> and I just assumed that I wouldn't win. So I thought I wouldn't going, but I wouldn't go. Sorry. But fortunately, my co-founder, um, Francesca, went to the award and picked it up for me. And she looks better holding an award than I would anyway. <laughs> so that's all good. Um, yeah. And then Umbo is a social enterprise um, that is specifically set up to help children in rural Australia mm. with access to healthcare. And the issue at the moment we're facing is that kids are not receiving really basic services like speech and occupational therapy. And they're waiting up to 18 months to get these services. 18 months. Mm. And, and these services are very urgent for kids. The longer they wait, the further they fall behind in school. Yeah the more likely they're uh, to drop out of school or to not do well academically. There's a very high correlation between not being able to communicate and going to jail. Um, up to 70% of juvenile offenders have communication difficulties. Mm. And then, of course, your prospects in terms of getting a job are entirely Quite, yeah, dependent yeah. on your communication skills. Absolutely. Wow. That, that You're doing a fair bit because now with the coronavirus fully in, well, in full swing, mm. um, there's no access to education in a way. Like a lot of places are being shut down. Look at Melbourne. Mm. <laughs> People have to stay at home and teach their kids. Yeah. And, and so because we're able to offer the service online and we connect them to our uh, clinicians that are all around Australia, mm. those wait times are cut down to eight, from 18 months down to hopefully a week or two. But also, um, yeah, the services are, for want of a better phrase, COVID proof. Um, because they are done online. So uh, during lockdown, we've seen a significant growth um, in the business, um, which has been, um, you know, it's funny because you don't want to celebrate something that is due to a pandemic and has caused so much suffering. But at the yeah. same time, it has shown that the model is very much one that suits the future. Yes. So going online was a better model after all for you guys. Yeah. Well, not just yeah. going online. I think also just starting online. You know, yeah. so many businesses have had to pivot from being face-to-face -to, -face to mm. then going online and have struggled with that journey. But when we started Umbo, we knew that uh, online was the way to go. So we just worked entirely virtually. Our team is... Um, you know, pretty much never meets face-to-face. -face. And certainly now with all of everything going on, it's unlikely we're going to be meeting face-to-face -face anytime soon. But yet you're delivering something that's wonderful and with a good purpose and helping kids out in rural area who usually have, you know, difficulties getting, you know, internet mm. and difficulties like just being isolated yeah. in general. So yeah. you're somewhat of a superhero, just like, you know, Captain Bagrat. <laughs> I, I would aspire to be as great as um, this wonderful <laughs> <laughs> one foot tall 
doll that's in front of me, but yeah. <laughs> He's very you. cuddly if you want to give him a yeah. hug. Uh, maybe later. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so before we actually go into the details of uh, how you started in the sector, mm. uh, the entire journey, the ups and downs, and obviously as well as, um, you know, how COVID has affected mm. your um, organization, which is in fact actually helped it. Um, let's start with the fast five. Let's do it. That's right. You get listeners like, you know, uh, frothy. <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> These are spontaneous questions, all right? All right. Hi. Hi. Your favourite football team? Oh, I mean, <laughs> what a terrible start. I know, sorry. <laughs> because I would have said um, the Wallabies or the Waratahs, but I've kind of given up on them. I'm a, ter I'm a terrible fan. Say what? Um, I'm embarrassed by those, uh, particularly the Waratahs at the moment. Um, but yeah, I could be convinced to go back and watch them once they get back into the swing of things. Okay. All right. Yeah. No worries. All right. Get your act together, Waratahs. <laughs> beer yeah. or whiskey? Oh, definitely whiskey. Booyah! Yeah, I love, I'm a big fan of whiskey. Um, particularly, uh, yeah, particularly, yes, particularly Japanese whiskey. Mm. Mm. Yeah, they're pretty good. Mm. Okay. Your inspiration or your hero? It sounds corny, but definitely my parents. Oh, yeah. Um, there are elements of both my parents that I see in my personality coming out, and not all of it's good. You know that moment <laughs> when you're like, at what point did I become my father? What point did I become a 70-year-old man? You know, I just find myself doing things and, and looking at it from an outside perspective going, oh, that's so embarrassing. But I will say that uh, I've been really fortunate to have two role models that I can um, mimic um, you know, m my approach to living off. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah. And I, and of course they're not perfect people, but I struggle to see role models outside of those two that I would be, um, and more willing to emulate. And what are some of the core qualities from mm. your mother and your father? Well, they're very different. They're okay. very, very different. So my dad is, um, most people would say I'm like my dad on the outside. So when they meet me, you know, my dad's quite personable. He's very friendly. He's very knowledgeable. He thinks very broadly. He's very, he inquires a lot, I think. Um, and my mum is more introverted, quiet, mm. um, really selfless, very, very humble and very selfless and uh, very, has a memory like an elephant, <laughs> um, which, which is irritating. Um, I don't have that memory, so I missed out on that particular part. <laughs> You're missing out on a great quality there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that memory where she'll say, you know, oh, just like that time that you did blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, what are you talking about? And she'll say, oh, you know, when you were, did this. And I'm like, oh, when, you mean when I was 14 years old? But that's what mums are for. They're, they've got to memories To remind like you, that. Yeah, 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 that's right. Bring you back to earth. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> All right. A movie or TV show that describes your life? This is a tough one. I'd say, I mean, I think one that jumps to mind is uh, The Secret Life of Walter Mitty, Booyah! which I actually watched last week, which is a Ben Stiller movie. And I feel like it's highly underrated. But if you ask people that have seen it, they'll almost universally say this is a great movie. So it's, it's really about him living a boring life on the face of it but having huge adventures in his head mm. and then actually having those adventures afterwards. So um, I think, you know, it, it sort of teaches him the value of just going for life. And it's a beautiful movie to watch, particularly this year. This is the right movie for 2020. It's got that balance between um, being inspirational, but not being too cerebral. 
Yeah, yep. and not too much like you're on, on the, in your face. In yeah. yeah, yeah, it's fun. It's, it's very fun. Interesting. Okay, now this is my favorite question, and I already know who you might say because <laughs> I took a photo of this particular th yeah. uh, thing <laughs> and sent yeah. it to you. Uh, if you could transform into any superhero, who would it be? What's your tagline? And how would you do the world, a, a, you know, a good thing? Mm. Geez, these are hard questions. I mean... I, like four I, questions. <laughs> yeah, so it's an existing superhero. Yeah, but if you want to, you know, customise it, it's totally fine. Well, I, I would say Captain... Uh, Bagrat? No, <laughs> not Bagrat. <laughs> um, I would say... Um, oh, Captain Redundant. Say what? I think is what I would say. I thought it was going to be Batman. You, you had all these photos of you dressed up like Batman yeah. the other day. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, yes. Yeah, so that's uh, that's that's very private. Um, Oops, sorry. <laughs> yeah. No, no, I'm kidding. Um, no. So I'm thinking about the idea of uh, a superhero that's not in it for the glory, mm. which does encapsulate a lot of them, including Batman, and um, is there to really do something really valuable, but also to make their leadership and their heroism or whatever they do, their work redundant. Mm -hmm. And that's something that I don't see a lot of in the social sector and in charities, but it's something that I'm really big on. So. You may, Madam Chan, have watched my TEDx talk, um, which talks a lot about this idea of redundant leadership. So success being that particularly charities should make themselves redundant. And so just to put it into the words, like if a country that you see requires some assistance mm. in terms of the aid space, mm. like, you know, it's always great to have um, people or organisations with you know, more experience to go in there to help them out, also to listen to what they want mm as well as implement solutions that is catered to the local people mm. and as well as their goals. And then once everything is in place, then um, you as the organi outside organization should pull out and just let them keep running the show. That's a good summary. Yeah, it's a very good summary. Why, thank you. I mean... <laughs> I have been watching it. <laughs> <laughs> you managed to summarize my 16-minute talk in 30 seconds, so oh, now I'm sorry. feeling a bit oh, no. ashamed. No, but no, no. <laughs> it's, it's the idea that it's also about questioning what does success look like. So I think... A lot of charities, on the face of it at least, would say that success is being big, is growing, you know, and this mm. is a very um, capitalist idea. It's a very it's a very corporate idea that mm. bigger and scaling is better. But in my opinion, charities should be talking about getting smaller and doing less and then becoming, as you mentioned, to a point where they can say, if we pull out, things will not only continue, they'll thrive mm. because we've involved local people and we've had local people lead it the whole way, um, the whole time it's been going and they have buy-in. So it's really about um, not just putting Band-Aid solutions and mm. addressing the symptoms, but really solving the core problem of what already is there. And so your mm. worldview of this um, re redundancy, is that from your own experience when you were mm. travelling in, in Asia? So can, can you give me a bit of a like uh, sure. history or background, your Asian-ish background? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure about the ish bit, but I... Yeah, I mean, my background is, so my great-grandparents are from China and my parents are from Malaysia and I was born in, and grew up in Australia. But I have spent eight years living and traveling and working and volunteering mm. in Asia. And one of the things I saw when I was there was this, I actually worked for a big charity that it seemed like um, their, their impetus was about redoing more work. You know, they wanted to use me as a way to justify them getting more money so oh, they could do more work. Okay. And to me, that that's really um, counterintuitive when you think about the fact that if you're not doing good work in the first place, why should you just keep on 
rehashing the same stuff, mm. you know. And also, as I mentioned, isn't the whole goal to not keep on doing work or shouldn't it be? Um, and, and the thing with, with charity work, like anything, is it becomes a lot about individuals and a lot about ego and a lot about your identity too. So it's very easy to be someone who starts a charity and then start seeing yourself as a charity founder. That's your two-word summary, mm. you know. So um, what I've had to learn, I guess, over time is how to disassociate my own um, personality and identity with my work. And that's really hard, you know. You, It's like with your podcast, you know, you spent hours and years and... Behind the scenes. Yeah, blood, sweat and tears, together. putting it all together. Yes. So for you to just rip that apart and go, look, this is different to who I am. If the podcast fails or if the charity fails, I'll still survive. Mm. That's really hard work to do. Um, and I feel like a lot of founders and people work in particularly leadership positions in charities um, are, are a bit afraid to do that work. And to dis mm. dislocate themselves from it as well. It's just like, you know, you are not the charity. Like, it should be the good will that you do, but then you as a person mm. should continue on with your, you know, personal uh, journeys elsewhere or, yeah, yeah continue that on. Well, like, yeah. like a lot of people, I've had experiences of, um, you know, close to burnout or, or maybe burnout. Mm. But one of the things I remember was that I uh, couldn't, do a lot of things that in inverted commas normal people would want to do so what i mean by that is find joy in everyday things mm. be kind to people in my life yeah. um you know I, I remember one time i forgot my niece's birthday and i'm very close to my nephew's nieces oh, no. and i just it just passed me by you know so i, I thought about that quite a lot and I, and I thought well why would i want to do all of these things that help a lot of people if i can't actually be good to the people around me so I, I actually have a list on my um, computer or on, in the cloud of 10 things that are signs of burnout for me. And if any of these two things happen to appear at the same time, mm -hmm. um, that is cause for me to kind of go, all right, well, maybe it's time to actually stop doing my job. You know, these are things that anyone... So it's things like, you know, am I not experiencing joy in um, exercising? Mm. Um, am I not excited about seeing my family? Okay. Um, really fundamental human things that should matter more than sitting in an office. That's great awareness because, you know, you need to have your own life as well. Like, you know, you're not part of the business all the time. Mm. It should be a separation, which is really hard for a lot of founders because they become so passionate about it, you know, not only in the social enterprise space, but also in the, you know, the, the project, like actual projects that make, you know, lots of money and go on to um, the uh, ASX or some sort of stock market. Yeah. That, yeah, burnout is a huge issue. <laughs> and, and you throw into that another complexity around mm. um, living in another country like Cambodia where you can take on a whole different identity. And the reason for that is because you, no one knows you. Mm. So you don't have your family and your usual friends there. So you can be free with who you are. And, and that has a lot of upsides, but it has potential downsides too. And sometimes I read charity websites and, um, you know, and I look at the our story part of it. And the first couple of lines of that, if it's the founder saying... I was in a really dark place. Oh, I had lost, no. you know, I'd lost purpose in my job working in banking. And, you know, I'm, I'm now I'm getting like uh, parroting. But if I was in Cambodia and I saw this young girl fishing for food outside of a rubbish bin and I just realized I had to do something about it, to me that is already a really bad start. That is just a Band-Aid approach to their own issues that they're going through. Exactly, yeah. Mm. You, you shouldn't ideally, um, you know, it's, not, it's hard to be blanket about it, but it's not ideal mm. to start something that affects people's lives just because there is a hole in your own. Mm. You know, that's not really the best... Cause, Think about the mental state, but then also think about that lack of separation then because this becomes your therapy, 
right? Starting a charity becomes your therapy and helping people becomes your therapy. Well, actually, you need to sort out your own stuff first. That's right. Yeah. And the mission that you have should be a life mission that's always been there. Or you do discover it, but then you're going to pull through the whole way. Yeah. And it's got to be about mm. more than yourself. It's got to be about, you know, taking yourself out of it to a certain extent. Excellent. Mm. And so what inspired you when you were over there? Did you see a young girl trying to fish? <laughs> <laughs> So I was working in a bank and I was really struggling with, no, I'm kidding. <laughs> no, I, I thought, oh no, don't tell me it's you. <laughs> um, I, yeah, I mean, I've, I've always been interested in helping and uh, I've always just been a w really aware of privilege and power. And I think, you know, I mean, this might sound familiar to you, but coming from a family that hasn't had a lot mm. and generationally hasn't had a lot. So ancestors really um, moving country because they couldn't eat. Um, and then being born in Australia, you have of all the countries in the world, being so fortunate to to come to be here and then to have an education which is absolutely first rate and healthcare and everything else. It is pretty good in Australia and in Sydney. Yeah, mm. yes, exactly, particularly in the cities. So being really aware of that and then I've had some experiences where um, I talk about this one where on my first day in school, I, I sat next to a boy who was colorblind, Roger, and my teacher, Miss Pickering, mm. told me on the first day, or asked me actually, you know, you need to help Roger with colouring in. So you need to pick out the right pencils for him. And so the rest of the year, it was me picking out the green for the grass and the blue for the sky. And we got along really well. But what I was able to learn when I was five was mm. just that people are different. You know, people are different. They have different skills and they have different areas where they need help. And I could play a part in that helping early stage of empathy development as well yeah. of you as a person. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I didn't know what the word disability meant, mm. but it certainly was something that was embedded in me at that stage. And I think when I went to, um, when I went overseas, so initially it was Vietnam, where I, I realised how much harder life was. And then just in Cambodia, you know, one uh, in 25 people need speech therapy. That's over half a million people need it. But there are no speech therapists in Cambodia at all. It's a, it's a mind-boggling statistic. And that was what got me wanting to start this charity, OIC Cambodia. And then, of course, as I mentioned, having it run by local people. Mm. And so uh, are you a speech therapist by trade as well? No, I'm a physiotherapist. Okay. Mm. So how did that come across? Like, how did you switch between the two? And well, did you need to get any qualifications? Right. I think it's really valuable not to have... Uh, sometimes it's really valuable to have deep technical knowledge, but it depends on what you want mm. to do. It depends on what kind of leader you want to be. Um, this might be a convenient thing to say, but I feel like my ignorance is a strength. You <laughs> know? bliss, right? <laughs> yeah. um, so I think sometimes George not, Orwell. <laughs> yeah, not knowing too much about a sector can help you come at it with fresh eyes. And so I, I worked alongside speech therapists in a hospital um, when I was working as a physio. So I sort of knew what they did to a certain extent. Mm. But of course, I'm not one. And statistically, I wouldn't be one because fun fact, Madam Chen, 98% of speech therapists in Australia are female. Wow. You yeah. are an anomaly or well, unique. Not... You're very unique. Yeah. So we're working in, in a way. very heavily female dominated space. Um, and uh, yeah, so anyone who works in that space who's not, um, is not female is, um, is an outlier. But I, I guess, yeah, I, I think it was that knowledge about speech therapy, but also in Cambodia, there is a physiotherapy course, mm. you know, and I'm not so parochial to think that it's got to be my area. Mm. I mean, I don't believe that 
physiotherapy is more important than speech therapy. It's just, let's just do the thing that matters the most. That's right. Mm. And it's a pretty good course because over the period of COVID, you, your umbo business has, well, sorry, not business, social uh, enterprise has increased in demand. Mm. And it's also something else that you mentioned that not a lot of people from Asian background or having Asian heritage go into social enterprises. Mm. And is that something that you've had to battle along the way? I think it's changing, first mm. of all. I think it's in the, in the generation below me and potentially you. Um, oh, oh, oh. <laughs> Kevin Bagrad, you but, mean? <laughs> but probably, yeah, your generation. Um, yeah, it, the younger generation in their 20s, it's, it's an incredible amount of cultural diversity and there are a lot of people from different backgrounds. But certainly in my generation and up, um, particularly a leadership level, you just mm. don't see that. You do see a, a real lack of cultural diversity in a lot of leadership and nonprofit spaces. And, you know, I mean, if we're talking stereotypes, when your parents, you know, told you to be whatever profession or not told you but encouraged you, mm. I'm pretty sure charity founder was not on that list or podcast host. No, not at all. Or having Asian parents, usually they'd say, you need to make money. You need to become a doctor yeah. or a lawyer, I think was the other yeah. one. Yeah. Mm. I mean, that was encouraged. And my, my eldest brother is, is a surgeon, mm. orthopedic oh, there surgeon. You go. So, <laughs> I mean, when he did that, uh, me being the youngest of the three, um, subconsciously said, right, well, they've got their one doctor in the family and I'm done. Yeah. And, and incidentally, my second brother then became a doctor too, a PhD. Um, oh, no. oh, PhD doctor. Yeah. Not a, not a surgical kind of doctor. No, no, different type of doctor. So, you know, my parents certainly can't complain. They've got two doctors as, um, you know, as children and one is doing other things. Which gave you the freedom to do whatever you wanted, <laughs> which was much. fantastic. You Pretty were just becoming a doctor, being a physio. Yeah, there were, yeah. I did think about that a little bit, but I'm glad that I didn't end up along that path. Oh, you're helping a lot of kids and that's for sure. And they need help in Australia or yeah. in the rural area where it's just so isolated. That's right. I, I think the other thing with, with Chinese families mm. as well, to, if I could talk specifically about that, is there's this kind of notion of uh, looking after your family. Mm. And I feel like that there's this idea that the community and society more broadly suffers because of that, because all the focus is on the family. Mm. And, um, you know, so with my family, when I first started working overseas and I was volunteering and you got to think about it from my parents' point of view, because they came from Malaysia to Australia to escape that kind of world and live a better life here. And so for me to go back or inverted commas, go back to a country that's even lower yeah. developed than Malaysia. From their perspective. Yeah. yeah, is kind of a bit of a, you know, hard to grapple with, I think. So um, they didn't quite understand. They thought, you know, you, you look after your family first initially. But then uh, I, I clearly remember this. We actually met in Singapore when I was probably in my early 30s. And they we met in Singapore for a cousin's wedding. And we were sitting in a hotel room. And I was talking about why this was so important to do because there were so many people suffering yeah. in Cambodia. And I think they could see the look in my eyes that I was not going to... Come back to Australia. <laughs> well, yeah, there was nothing going to stop me from doing it. So they then became very supportive, which oh, is that's, nice. That's nice because, yeah, like I feel exactly the same. My my parents, being you know Chinese background, mm. first uh, generation in Australia so mm. as migrants, suffered quite a lot and came over here for a better life. Um, same thing that when I said, hey, I'm going to go to Southeast Asia and all these, uh, mm. and Sri Lanka and India because I want to I want to discover what, you know, Asia is really about. Mm. And my mother was the same. She was like, 
What are you doing with your education? You should be finding a job in a bank right now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Or become a doctor like Way's Brothers. Yeah, exactly, like <laughs> Way's Brothers, because, go, oh, that's cool. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Oh, did you know that Michelle Yeoh is in Sydney right now? I didn't know that. She's no. got the same surname as you. I know. We you probably guys... are related. I don't know how, but we probably... I'll claim it. And she's from Malaysia, She's pretty too. great. She's, she's, awesome. she's amazing. Yes, because they're filming for um, San Chi, which is the next Marvel oh, movie. Yeah. yeah. And that could have been a uh, superhero that I, uh, you know, could envisage, but I thought that would be a bit obvious. Too obvious, yeah. yeah. Being a, you know, a karate <laughs> expert yeah. or, or some sort of martial arts. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> okay, let's move away from this discussion. <laughs> I just thought of, oh, yo, she's in town. Yeah. <laughs> and so um, so once you got into Cambodia mm. and started building OIC, mm. is it? Okay, um, you were there for eight years. What was what were some of your observations or um, what the other NGOs were doing? Mm. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's an interesting place because... Cambodia at the time, anecdotally, had the second highest number of NGOs in the world. Mm. And um, you sort of, you can see how it happens because the country was obviously devastated by civil war. Mm. And historically, one really piece, one really important piece of information is that the UN actually formed a transitional government. So rather than keeping the government in power and then working with them, the UN actually took charge of that country. And I think that is really important because it, it disempowered people mm. um, in in one move, and there's other things along the line, you know, that happened prior to that and after that too. But that was certainly something that's quite fundamental. So what what happens in Cambodia is you have all of these NGOs that are in there doing all this work. There is a lot of you know savior syndrome, white savior mm. syndrome. There's a lot of that kind of stuff. Again, you look to the leadership, and you have country directors that are mostly European. American, Australian, and very few local people leading organisations. And you just kind of wonder why, because there are so many competent local people, but I think it's hard to give up that control. Mm. And then you've got the charities that are fighting for space and, and wanting to expand, as I mentioned, and and bragging about it, really, and saying, you know, we, we raised 90 million this year. That's great, because we only raised 67 last year. You know, and to me, that that's a funny thing to brag about. Oh, I think from um, a management point of view, I think that's uh, what they have to report in order to receive more mm. grants later on. So it's kind of a, a system that's not exactly healthy. It doesn't exactly um, run true to the, um, uh, you know, for them to finally pull out. Uh, it just encourages them to keep going, yeah. get more projects on board, start projects that might not be necessary for yeah. the country itself. If we take it, if we take it to the commercial sector, so mm. what what is it that makes, so, well, what's what's one of the signs of success from a commercial business? It's when you're able to have a potential customer come to you, an opportunity come to you, and say, no, we actually don't need it, or we'll refer you to someone else. But that what you mentioned there is mm. this sort of idea of no, we've got to get all the business for ourselves. That's what NGOs often think. I think it's so. Health, yeah. You know, that's not a that's not a sign to me of strength. That's a sign of weakness. Um, you should be able to say, actually, we don't need to do this piece of work. We don't need that money. Mm-hmm. Some NGOs do do that. They do pass up on opportunities for funding. And I think that's really awesome. But um, few and far between. <laughs> yeah. So there's a bit, a bit of a ter- territorial dispute over in Cambodia then by some of the big players. There are, not even big, I mean, big yeah. and small. There's a lot of uh, fighting. One of the assumptions people make about people who work in the NGO space mm. is that they're all really nice. And that's not true. You're nice. 
Thank you. <laughs> That's not all true. Okay. <laughs> well, parts of that are true. But <laughs> so it's really incredible. I mean, I've, I've talked to people. I've never worked, I mean, in some organizations, which I won't name, but big organizations. And they've talked to me about the infighting and the, the politics and the sabotage that are employed that you would expect to find in private um, firms. Yeah, like in an yeah. Uber or, a, or Amazon, something like that, a more ruthless for-profit. Those ones listed on the stock exchange, you know, they're going for it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> each other, trying to get profits, I suppose. Yeah, but it's a definite myth that people, you know, mm. in this sector are nice. Um, a lot of people are nice, but it's just like anywhere else. A lot of people are not that great either. Sink your teeth into it. Mm. Yeah. And so the reason why you came back to Australia was because you felt that uh, OIC was running uh, very well with right. local um, leadership. Mm. Yeah. So, uh, again, I think I think it's really mm. wrong for foreign people um, to go into countries and essentially tell people what to do. Mm. Um, and, I, and I always use the analogy of Australia, We our cricket team had a South African-born coach I hope I got this right. I'm pretty sure it was <laughs> Oh, African. no, fact check time. Mickey Arthur. <laughs> Someone will correct you if I'm incorrect. But I'm, I'm pretty sure he was South African-born, but he's certainly not Australian-born. Okay. And um, there was an enormous amount of kerfuffle about the fact that he was not born in Australia. And this is cricket. Cricket doesn't matter <laughs> in the big scheme of things. Oh, apparently cricket does matter in <laughs> Australia and in the UK. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we're talking about, with non-profits, talking about people's lives. We're talking about live, we're saving lives, livelihoods, um, health, education, really important things. So, you know, but yet we, we seem to think it's okay that, um, you know, these organisations have foreign heads. So I don't believe that. And that's why it took four years, which actually is relatively quick, is very quick that's, yeah, that from is. inception to hand leadership handover. And now what I'm really also proud of is not just the fact that they're run by, there's two entities there run by uh, Cambodian people, but mm. Cambodian women as well. And I was really big on that because, um, you know, most countries or all countries have a degree of um, inequality in mm. terms of gender, but Cambodia in particular, I believe, is is worse than a lot of other countries. So you don't tend to see women in positions of power, but conversely, that tends to make them actually more competent, of course, because they're not, they're not complacent. No, no. And they're like, I've finally been given the opportunity, so I'm going to pursue what yeah. I need to pursue. Yeah. So we're really, we're really fortunate to have two really great female leaders in these organisations. And then moving back to Australia, you know, it's that sort of learning lesson for me about how to let go. Yeah. That was a really important part of the, the puzzle. And what song did you listen to to make yourself feel better <laughs> <laughs> in the middle of the night? Like that Frozen song, the Let It Go. <laughs> let it go. <laughs> oh, most, please don't whip that out. <laughs> yeah, I wasn't planning on it. Yeah, probably the most accurate one. And then how did um, OIC, has OIC transformed into Umbo or, or has it just been an offshoot? It's a separate entity, so it's okay. still running. I'm not on the board of OIC Cambodia, okay. but we have set up OIC Australia, okay. which is a charity in Australia that does have DGR, meaning we can take tax-deductible donations in case anyone's interested in supporting its OIC Australia, um, as in the letters OIC Australia. And, uh, yeah, we can do that, and um, I'm on the board of that. And then UMBO happened because I realised that in Australia, um, through some research, that there is this huge problem that I mentioned around massive wait mm. times, but also the technology has improved quite a lot. So when I was a physiotherapist back in 2004, I was working in a rural part of New South Wales in Lithgow, actually, um, only an hour and a half outside of Sydney. And I remember similar wait times, 12 to 18 months were quoted. Now, fast forward, you know, 16 years, same. 
The difference is that technology has improved obviously mm. a lot. The NBN has improved internet connectivity a little bit. And <laughs> uh, I won't say quite a lot. And um, the knowledge and the evidence base for this form of therapy is really good now. So one of my co-founders is actually finishing up his PhD and it's showing that a lot of this uh, online coaching model that he's um, developing um, is as effective as face-to-face. -face. Excellent. Because... Mm. You know, as we have seen from COVID, uh, pretty much all of March, uh, by the end of March, everyone was, everyone was desperate. Like, what is going to happen? We have to shut down for six weeks. No one's allowed to go anywhere. Uh, and obviously, school, education, it was all disrupted. Mm. But w how did you feel at the time? Did you think, oh, my God, here we go. Like, Ombo's going to be affected. We're not going to get anything done. Like, well, tell me the emotions that went through. Yeah, uh, that's a good question. I, I think the emotions were, like everybody, just this sort of feeling of anxiety. You mm. know, we... I remember we had a team call maybe the week after lockdown and we did this thing about let's go around the room and talk about how we feel. And everyone mentioned the word anxious or mm. a variety of. So I certainly felt that in terms of not knowing what's going to happen here. And the then also, yeah. And, and, we're, and I think COVID, like a lot of things, is um, a thing about control and being able to say, you know, what is and isn't in my control. And there are so many things with COVID this year that has shown me that most of my thing, most of the things are out of my control. So I, I think I learned that relatively quickly. But with Umbo, yeah, there was a certain sense of anxiety, but also this adrenaline rush came in. We, we worked very long hours the first couple of months, you know, insane hours to try and um, get things up and running mm -hmm. because we knew that there were practices all around Australia that would shut down if we didn't help them. So we actually launched a, um, a summit within about the second week. Uh, we had about a week's preparation time. Over 500 people attended. Wow, that's fast. Yeah, and it was all about them transitioning from being a face-to-face -face clinician to being online. Mm. Um, so that, that um, hard work has really paid off now. It's really helped us to you know, get some footing in this space and to have people aware of who we are. And it's helped the team to grow. So we've grown from, I think it was about five team members at the yeah. start of March. At one point it was over 20. Wow. Yeah, we're now back in the high teens. Yeah. Um, but, you know, at least three times plus growth. So it's pretty much fast-tracked you during that tumultuous period. So I'm, I'm guessing your clients have increased quite a bit as well, which is very unexpected given the circumstances of, you know, what was going on in Australia. Mm. Yeah. I think it's adoption, yeah. It's mm. adoption of online practice. So, you know, I, I don't know if you've had any GP appointments in this last five months. Um, obviously not because you're super healthy. <laughs> but um, I wear a mask. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but, you know, the, this idea now, I mean, I had one a couple of months ago, I think, and it was a phone conversation as opposed to a video chat. But regardless, mm. I can't imagine going back into a GP clinic. I don't know why I would. There's no real need to. Yeah, I wouldn't either, especially all the health healthcare workers were in hospitals mm. in the front line who are now unfortunately being affected. So, yeah. you know, that's a bit of a deterrence. <laughs> yeah. So being able to... So the, this this idea of like the adoption increasing mm. has really progressed. Telehealth and similar things would have taken maybe five or so years. It's taken just months. Mm. And people have kind of realised that, oh, okay, it, it, it is possible online, but not only that, it's actually better. Mm. I, I, again, I, my GP is a, fit, a 10 to 15 minute drive uh, from my place. Why would I? Why would I waste half an hour That's of my right. life when I can do it online? And then having the issues of trying to find a car park and yeah. then you park somewhere illegally and you get a ticket. Yeah. There's all that as well. <laughs> also, 
also thinking about GPs now, I'm thinking about it, wait, waiting rooms as well. Oh, it's yeah. variable. You know, you go in there, it could be five minutes, it could be an hour. So if it's online, it's you just block out time. I'm at home or the office doing my work. Mm. They just call me five minutes later, we're done. It's just makes so much more sense. Yeah, because most, you know, like an annual consultation, it only goes for five minutes mm. or 10 minutes. Yeah. So that's a lot of travel time as well as waiting time, anxiety time. Yeah. So you, you amplify that. If you live in a rural mm. community, you're traveling sometimes two, 300, 400 kilometers for medical appointments that might not last very long, depending on what it is. And that amount of time is a drain, a huge drain yeah. on people. Obviously, the economy emissions we're tracking some of these things um in terms of time saved yes. and kilometers traversed um and the numbers are massive they, they get up very quickly and also this will be during the day usually between nine to five and if a child's supposed to be in school that's what oh, driving 200 to 300 kilometers and back that's at least six hours of the child's day at school right so here's here's the other thing it's yeah. not just the child but it's also potentially the child's uh, siblings because you've got to bring them along so we're taking out multiple kids out of their normal life. But the other thing is that um, the most effective form of therapy mm. is contextual. You know, so let's say, for example, you've got a problem with um, you've had an injury in your arm or, and you have a problem with eating. Well, yeah, you could come into my clinic between the hours of nine to four and be seen by a therapist and mm. mimic your eating. Or we could just watch you at dinner time, which is at <laughs> 7 p.m. Now, the problem is that no clinician wants to work at 7 p.m. Yeah, Often clinicians are mothers and they've got their own families to look after. So what that doesn't really work, but it does work if we have clinicians in different time zones. Mm. So we actually were, prior to COVID, having, uh, hoping to have one clinician in Europe and one in Asia. That would be office hours for them, but on the east coast of Australia, the perfect time to see a child. That is very smart because there's at least two hour difference, right? If right. It's the clinician is in Asia yeah. somewhere. Yeah, yeah and that's right. So even west coast of Australia actually works quite well. Yeah. But, um, you know, what, what we're trying to do is not only help people in rural communities access therapy, but we're also trying to um, think about what is the why is the standard practice of therapy the way it is mm. and what are the limitations around it and how can we actually create um, not only a system that, is as good as face-to-face -face therapy, but actually is better. And just out of all that, mm. how did you survive COVID? Like, yeah. Did you go through some of your own roller coasters or nightmares? What are some top tips that you could give people right now, especially one in Melbourne, they just mm. entered into um, another six weeks of isolation? Right, yeah, so I think the first one is to understand the implications of COVID and allow yourself to be not perfect. You know, I read something that uh, there was a, an email sent out to the Canadian government employees in a certain department and it was a directive from management and the top thing was you are not working from home. You are working during a global pandemic. Your productivity will be hit and that's okay. So I think that's the first thing is to be self-forgiving mm. when things aren't perfect mm. um, and allow yourself to, to say, you know what, like of course I'm distracted or of course I'm... Um, not unmotivated because X, Y, Z, you know, yeah. and, and people in Melbourne at the moment, they would be still experiencing that. The second thing is routine is really important. And um, my routine was not perfect, but it was solid enough that I could maintain, you know, a certain level of sanity and productivity at home. And probably the third thing is just to reach out for help and, and not to be afraid of that. You know, it's a sign of strength, not a sign of weakness to reach out for help. And 
it took me a little bit of time to reach out, but when I actually did, um, and it was able to talk about my own struggles, mm. um, I just felt better straight away, and, and I just wondered why it took so long to do it. Well, I'm glad you reached out and sent me that photo of you in the Batman. <laughs> bit of cosplay. <laughs> Look, I sent you the one of me in NASA. <laughs> but I think that, like you know, particularly for leaders, business leaders, organisational leaders, mm. oh man, political leaders, right now. It's your job is to support other people, you know, and very rarely do your staff ever we'll think you. about how are you going, yeah. you know. So you actually need to proactively find that either from them or somewhere else, but mm. you probably need to initiate it yourself, unfortunately. Yeah, and usually you probably have to reach out to other leaders because, like, sometimes they your staff it. will see you weak if you're, you know, trying to reach out to them and go, I need some support, let's go and have a... Or maybe not a beer these days in pubs because yeah. <laughs> it's highly contagious. Yeah. Yeah, but yeah, I completely understand from your point of view. The most common the most common thing I get when I ask people mm. why didn't you um say, Are you okay? Mm. is this sort of strange response around, I just didn't think you needed. I didn't think you needed. And I think that that sort of suggests that I'm you know, infallible or, you know, um, omnipotent which is complete rubbish of course so i just reinforce you know in a very kind way no i'm human like everybody else even though i do want to be a superhero yes but i am human <laughs> yeah what did i say captain redundant captain redundant <laughs> hasn't happened yet haven't been bitten by a spider well i thought you were going to say you know batman so i was going to call you bruce way <laughs> you're stealing my jokes actually because that's a joke that i use with my nephews and nieces. are you kidding you yeah. actually use it and they they roll their eyes and then I they go, don't find it funny. And I go, no way. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, this is so terrible. I'm so sorry. I mean, you know, you know you're really scraping the barrel of humor when a six-year-old rolls her eyes at you and says, that's really not funny. <laughs> so a way forward from here. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> sorry, way. How many in the list have you got? <laughs> <laughs> Look, I, I, think, I think that's enough. I think the listeners are going, oh, please shut up, Madam Chair. <laughs> In hindsight, okay, mm. would a fresh graduate by the name of Wei mm. ever expect this particular journey? Would you, could you have seen yourself go down this road? You mean having the pleasure of being, <laughs> I won't say locked, but being in a room with you <laughs> for 45 minutes on a podcast? No. 1.5 metres. Yeah, of course. would never yeah. have dreamed. Uh, no. So I think like most people, this is a cliche, mm. but my life and career has been only something that makes sense in retrospect. Excellent. Yeah, it's never linear. It's never that planned and and i think that that's probably one of the key bits of when i mentor people that are you know university age one of the key things i notice is a desire to have everything kind of stepped out and planned and very methodical and that works for some people mm. but it certainly didn't work for me and i wouldn't advise it for most people and covid's really taught us that right like whatever yeah, plans you exactly. had i don't know one person i don't know a single person i've talked to who hasn't said along something along the lines of did you know I was supposed to be in Italy now? Something like that, you know. And, and actually, literally, I was supposed to be in Italy in September. So, um, uh, you know, you can have the best plans in the world, but, it, um, you know, what's that, that line about um, a, a business plan only serves until first contact with customer? Something like that. So yeah, yeah. Not to say that you shouldn't plan, but mm. just to say that that planning is only really valid up until a certain point. And change is constant. Yeah. Change is constant mm. and the more you can embrace change and, you know, it's, it's a cliche again, but we're living in an era of change. What I find in our space, because everything is new and changing, is that the people who thrive are those who can deal with the uncertainty of change and are able to, again, navigate that what can I control and what mm. can I not control. And those who want to control everything mm. but can't deal with the fact that they can't, they really struggle. 
acceptance in a way as well. Yeah. And having the flexibility to move on. Acceptance is, uh, yeah, really important. Really important. Well, Wei, I know you're on a deadline, so <laughs> I'm just going to mention one more thing before we, we give everything, give you a plug. So I was on your Twitter. Oh, <laughs> yeah. oh no, now I'm worried. <laughs> Stalking you? Yeah. yeah. No, no, and, what, yeah. I, what did I say this time? <laughs> <laughs> no, you said, you said something pretty funny. Um, it was a, a, a tweet that you made about a dog that uh, apparently can sniff out coronavirus. Yeah, isn't that cute? <laughs> it's adorable. Well, I mean, there are, there are plenty of people that are getting dogs because yeah. of lockdown. So this is perfect. We, it's sort of like, you know, we've boosted the the ability to go out and sniff the virus if they're already in the, in the community. I mean, who doesn't have a dog now So or a cat or something? So it's pretty cute though. And they're pretty good for anxiety, you know, for people who have anxiety. So they, they calm you down. So apparently the yeah. sales of dogs during lockdown have skyrocketed because everyone was stuck at home and they needed something to occupy themselves and dogs make sense. Demand is high, supply is low, I'm guessing. That's right. That's right. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Wei, for your time today. It has been a pleasure, and I'm so glad Captain Bagrat finally got to meet a real <laughs> superhero in this world, helping kids in Australia and over in Cambodia. <laughs> um, I'm humbled to be compared to a one-foot-tall kangaroo. But, yeah, thanks, um, Madam Chan. It's been um, really fun. Excellent. And so for those who want to find out more about Umbo, um, could you please let them know where to go? You can. Oh, yeah, I can. So umbo, <laughs> umbo.com.au. Umbo is the tip of the shield or the inner part of the ear, oh. depending on how you want to define it. But umbo.com.au. And, uh, of course, you can find my wonderful Twitter account and um, they will get the spelling, of course, on the podcast. <laughs> W-E-H. Correct. Y-E-O-H. Nice. Uh, got it right. Hold on. Hold on. <laughs> it's only taken a couple of years. That's all right. Oh, look. I'm a slow learner. <laughs> and that's a yes way. I am a <laughs> I didn't say anything. <laughs> all right. Bag right out. Hey, thanks for listening to this week's podcast. For the latest updates and kooky posts, follow us at Captain Bagrat on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. If you love it as much as Captain Bagrat and we do, please support us with likes and shares. If you're really digging Captain Bagrat, it does cost us a bit to produce, and we really appreciate donations and in-kind contributions via Patreon or however you like. I mean, we will never say no to be a sponsorship. Your support will bring us one step closer to having our own TV show one day and to live broadcast it from the heart of downtown Chinatown. Solid.